So if you guys have been here the last several months with us, you would know what I've been preaching on. And I always think that I'm done with the topic, but then God seems to just give me more things to talk about. Can anyone tell, tell us what, we, what I've been preaching on? Judgment. It is uh, such a sexy topic. It's, it's such a, a light and fun topic. Uh, but I hope that you guys have uh, really grabbed a hold with the spiritual principle behind judgment and judging others and not fearing the subject and fearing like I, I, to be a good Christian, I have to stop judging others, but really seeing it as almost uh, something just to be aware about that you actually could step and rise above that. And as you uh, step out of partnering with that old system of the old man, that you would actually set yourself up for transformation in your life. So what I've been trying to illuminate is that the carnal wiring of our old man has, has made it our norm to judge others and ourselves. And we don't even think about it because it happens in our unconscious, subconscious. And so unless you actually take a, a little beat and stop to think about what you're thinking about, then you won't really even notice that you're doing it all the time. So that's actually part, half of the battle, just being aware, being hyper aware that this is something that we have a tendency to do. And so once we do that, then we could stop it in its tracks. So instead of assuming we know the heart intentions and motives of others, we can be conscious about becoming observers instead. And when we become observers, we end up giving benefit of doubt. So I was scrolling through uh, Instagram, as we all do all the time, <laughs> and I came across this uh, video that Seth Dahl, how many of you guys know Seth Dahl? Uh, we love him. Uh, he, he posted something, and I, I love it when God just kind of throws in little reminders here and there and just confirmations. And he will often do this with me when I'm preaching on a, a subject. He'll just confirm the word. I'll see it here and there. And it's like the spirit is like communicating things like all across the body. And I, I really do feel like that God is highlighting this subject. But um, in this video, Seth says this, that God told him that curiosity will keep you out of judgment. Curiosity will keep you out of judgment. And you'll stay out of judgment if you stay curious. So this makes it really simple. Instead of assuming someone's heart motives and intentions, we can stay curious and ask questions. So you can ask someone, hey, can you tell me what was going on inside of you when you did that? Instead of, I think I know what went on inside of you when you did that. You know, when we do that, that it's easy for us to partner with uh, offense because we automatically assume the worst of someone and that they're out there trying to get at us, right? So since I've become more used to catching myself whenever I jump into assuming I know someone's heart, it has even changed the way that I read the Bible. So last week, I explained, or last time I preached, I explained how we can, when we understand the spiritual principle of judging others, then um, we can even notice how we impose self-defining and self-limiting boxes to fit into depending on who, who, who is in front of us. 
So if a person that I haven't met in a long time, I come across this person, then without me knowing, in my unconscious, I'm, I have a judgment of how they last perceived me. And I will kind of fit into that box and be that person. Let's say I'll, the last interaction I had with someone was, I was very unloving and I was really selfish, right? And, that, and then I see this person like, you know, years later, and I come to this person, and automatically, I don't know why, but I, I feel like I'm that selfish person in front of this person, that I'm not that loving, that I haven't grown. Well, that's what was happening to me. And so when you can understand this principle, then you can stop it and rise above it. And so today, I kind of want to even go a little bit further and show you how judging others and judgment can even affect how you read the Bible and how you interpret the Bible. And when you do this, you could draw maybe wrong conclusions about God, about yourself, and even life lessons. So, I mean, that has big implications if, if we actually interpret the Bible wrong, right? And so today's sermon is called Judging Joseph. And, um, yeah, <laughs> Judging Joseph. Today, I, I want to redeem Joseph. I feel like the church has done him dirty for too long. Uh, you know, I feel like... Every time he's in the cloud of witnesses, every time someone preaches about Joseph, he's like, oh, man, they're just going to butcher me again. And now he's like, you know, dapping me up in heaven saying, yeah, yeah don't worry, I got you, I got you. <laughs> but, um, man, I just sounded like a millennial right there. <laughs> or a Gen Zer. But every sermon I've ever heard about Joseph was that he was an arrogant, prideful kid who needed to be set straight by God. Who's ever heard that, right? That when he was young, he was, he was this kid who was just so prideful, and he was a bratty kid. And I never had any uh, reason to question it because so many pastors preach this. And I'm just thinking, hey, there's so many pastors that have way more Bible knowledge and experience than me, so I never really had any reason to see if that was wrong. But something about Joseph's story never really ever added up to me. And um, I personally believe that we have misjudged him this whole time. And as a result, we made some wrong conclusions about God, ourselves, and about life. So let me just set the stage for you a little bit, okay? I'm not trying to convince you that I'm right, okay? So if, when I'm walking you through how I read and dissect Joseph's story, I'm more focused on maybe introducing a different perspective. And maybe I could give you different tools when you study and wrestle with the Bible, how you could actually read it with the uh, author's original intent in mind. And, and not being readily, like, just assuming that you know even a Bible character's heart, motives, or intentions, unless the, the scripture explicitly said so, okay? So I believe Joseph, instead of being a bratty, arrogant, prideful kid, I believe that he was an innocent, righteous, and obedient son who knew he was fully loved by his father. Maybe he was not even young, because he was 17 years old, but I just can't picture him to be the bratty, arrogant, prideful kid, uh, because I just see inconsistencies. And I'll come to that and explain that a little later. 
but not once did I see in the text that Joseph acted in a willfully prideful way. I believe we just assume that. So when reading the story of Joseph, we're going to walk through it together. We're going to go through a lot of scripture together. So you're going to have to, I'm going to put you to work today. Are you good with that? So you got to stick with me. I promise it'll pay off. So when reading the story, Joseph, try to read it with a clean slate and a fresh pair of eyes. Try to be an observer of the facts and not readily assume his heart, unless the Bible says so. I want to give you an example of this. In John chapter 12, verse 3, this is a story of when Mary poured out oil all over Jesus' feet. Verse 3 says, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And the Bible explains his heart motive right here in plain sight. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And, the money, and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. So if scripture here left out the fact that, you know, Judas Iscariot uh, is someone that, who, who would betray him, and um, someone that didn't actually care for the poor, but he was a thief, then it would seem like a genuine question, that he actually cared for the poor. This is not rocket science, I'm just giving you an example that the Bible, if it wants to show someone's intent, heart motive, it, it can and does do that, right? So jumping into Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 37, starting at verse two, I want you to have that same kind of lens and, and I'll walk this, uh, through this with you guys. So this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Let me just pause right there. Okay, so here um, it says that Joseph was with his brothers. And his brothers were the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. So that's really significant, okay? Because... Bilhah and Zilpah, they were maids of Rachel and Leah, okay? And Joseph was the son of Rachel, who was Jacob's, you know, first love. It was the love of his life. So just by position, okay, Joseph is elevated above his brothers. You see that? Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so get that, his brothers knew. His brothers even knew that uh, Jacob loved Joseph more than them. They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So just dealing with the observable facts here, okay? His brothers we're already predispositioned to hate Joseph. It even says so explicitly here, that they hated Joseph, okay? And they knew that Joseph was loved more than they were. How many of you guys have ever been in a situation where someone was jealous of you because of your status? 
because of the favor you had, the money you had, success you had, and they hated you before you even did anything. Does that, has that happened to anyone? Then you could probably relate to Joseph. Before he did, even did anything, they hated him. We do hear that Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father, but we don't know what that bad report was. And I've always assumed, you know, whenever I hear this being preached, that, oh, it's, it was because he was just slack, uh, they were slacking off and being lazy, but we don't know. What if it was worse than that, right? And we, we assume that Joseph was a tattletale, but could it be that he was just being an obedient son who was obeying his father's commands? Because as I'll show you just in a, a few verses later, uh, we'll see Jacob actually telling Joseph to go to his brothers and bring back report of them. So who's to say that this isn't what Joseph was doing right here, right in the beginning? We don't know. So starting with verse, uh, going back to verse 5, it says, Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. <laughs> wow, a lot of hate for Joseph right here. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field, that behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and, and for his words. I think what's fascinating here is that his brothers immediately jump to their assumption and their own interpretation of this dream. Just ob observing the facts, Joseph matter-of-factly told them, this was my dream. Like, how do you tell a dr a, someone a dream without telling them the dream? Right? <laughs> So they, they came up with their own assumption and interpretation of the dream. We actually don't hear Joseph's inter own interpretation of the dream. Then he, uh, he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down uh, to the earth before you? And, and his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So we see here that Joseph shares two dreams with his family. And again, um, the second time he, he shares a dream, we don't hear Joseph's interpretation of the dream. We just see his father automatically assuming what the interpretation is and gets mad at Joseph. And... Here's something, uh, inconsistency that I have, a, a problem that never really sat with me. If we have labeled Joseph as this tattletale, goody-two-shoe, like uh, just a prideful, arrogant kid, right? And, he, and he, he's tattling on, on his brothers to his father. Why would he now then just come with a dream and just stick it to his own dad and piss him off? You know, in a prideful way, saying, one day you're going to bow down to me. Right? It doesn't make sense. But what if it said, and I'm not saying that I know, but what if, like, have you ever had a powerful encounter with God? Where it, where it like, shook you to the core? Like, you don't even know everything that just happened. 
But, but I know when I've had powerful encounters with God and he spoke to me in a powerful way, I can't wait to share it with my loved ones, my family, my friends. And yes, he's 17 years old. Could he have delivered it in a more tactful way? I don't know. Like, seriously, how do you tell a dream without telling the dream? I don't know. I, I think he, he just gave it in a matter-of-fact way. This is what happened in my dream. And immediately... They assumed, oh, what, are you saying we're going to bow down to you? This is why I also think that, because in verse 11 it says this, and his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So if Joseph, just follow me here, if Joseph is this prideful, arrogant kid, why would you give what he's relaying as his dreams any weight? Why would you even give it a second thought? Why would you envy Joseph, that he had those dreams and you didn't? And why would his father keep the matter in mind? What if, wouldn't it be more consistent if they knew Joseph's character, that he is an innocent, maybe naive, but he's an innocent, righteous, obedient son, and he wouldn't tell a lie? And now, yeah, their first reaction is like, what? What are you saying? You're going to... You're saying we're going to bow down to you? But after they, they come to think of it, and they're like, man, he's probably telling the truth. I'm not trying to, look again, I'm not trying to convince you guys. You might think that I'm reading too much into this, but I'll just keep going on. And, and you guys can wrestle with this for yourselves. So... Genesis 37, verse 12, and it continues. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So we said to him, Here I am. <laughs> I mean, I, I see Joseph as this kid who's he's just, he knows he's loved. I mean, he's readily coming to his father saying, Here I am. And we see here, it says, Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he's telling Joseph, Go to your brothers, bring back a report about them back to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. So could it be that the first time we hear Joseph sent a bad report, Mind you, let me remind you that they already hated him anyway. <laughs> and we don't know what they were doing. It could be, you know, worse than just being lazy. Could it be that he was simply being an obedient son because Jacob had asked him to bring back a report? We don't know. I guess I'm giving him benefit of doubt here. So what happens next in the story we hear Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. He's brought into Egypt to Potiphar's house. And Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. And we immediately see that Joseph is serving Potiphar so well that he's promoted to be in charge of all of his house. So Genesis chapter 39, verse 6 it says, now Joseph was, and this is in Potiphar's house, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, 
And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So here's my disconnect. We assume that Joseph was this immature, prideful tattletale. Yet, in my opinion, he never showed this before. His behavior here is more consistent with him being an obedient son who knew that he was loved. So the very next thing we see him doing is serving Potiphar with excellence and making a righteous decision with the fear of the Lord. And we never see a struggle. We never see a maturation process where he's rooting out this prideful and arrogant behavior. And look, the Bible does leave out a lot, so maybe that happened, maybe that didn't. I'm just trying to have you question and see where I'm coming from. And so from one moment, you're this bratty, arrogant kid, even to the, the point where you'd stick it to your own father and say, hey, you're going to bow down to me one day. And, and then the next, you're seen serving with excellence and making a righteous decision with the fear of the Lord. So that, to me, would, the narrative would be more consistent if Joseph, from the get-go, was this you know, innocent boy, obedient, righteous boy, who knew how to and served his father well. And now he's in this different situation, and he's serving Potiphar well. He's doing what he was already always doing. We think, and we've heard it preached, that uh, God is the one that put Joseph in the prison. We, we heard it preached that God put him in the prison because he needed to refine his character for his ultimate calling. Look, in and of itself, I don't have a problem with that. That's good. That, uh, like, that might be true. But what if there's a deeper lesson and meaning that the author originally intended, that we completely miss out on. So even if you don't believe me and you still think I'm reading too much into it and uh, that, no, yeah, yeah, he, was in, uh, he was put in slavery and in the prison to refine his character, then let me come ba at, back at you with this. If he's a righteous man, he even... He even escaped Potiphar's wife trying to have him to sleep with her. You know how hard that is? If you're an arrogant, bratty kid, all of a sudden you're given the keys to the kingdom, right? You're given power, influence, authority, right? Wouldn't that get to your head? And, you, and it, it's, the scripture said he was handsome too. He, he was a good-looking dude. Right? Yet, he had something instilled within him, a deeper righteousness, where he was able to withstand that temptation. Look, I say this with no judgment and just being really sober, but, I mean, even in the past couple of years, how many stories have we heard of very seasoned uh, leaders in ministry that fell to temptation? I'm just mentioning that because I'm saying this isn't 
trivial. It's not like an easy thing to do. So Joseph's demonstrating here that he had a depth of character that I don't think could have been microwaved overnight. Let's say even if, like, if it's true that God put him there to refine his character, then why did he have to go to prison for more years after that? If he already displayed that he's righteous, he, he's, his character is amazing, he's serving with excellence, he's being faithful, he has the fear of the Lord, why did he have to go to prison for more years? Is God that cruel? Is God the one that puts us in, in slavery or prisons for our good? Just questions to think about. So where I'm getting at is this. What if the bigger picture is showing an example of someone who was a righteous and obedient son who knew that he was fully loved by his father And what if the point of the story is that, hey, life isn't always fair. It doesn't matter who you are. You're going to go through some tough times. And what we do is, is we have this tendency to attribute to God what should be attributed to the enemy, what should be attributed to the devil. So when we come with this judgment on Joseph that it may seem like a simple judgment, but like, oh, this bratty kid, he needed to be set straight by God. That's why he took him into slavery in the prison. Then, yes, we come to that conclusion that he's there because God put him there. And what can be harmful with that is that then maybe we have the wrong revelation about God. And we think, oh, God's the one who, who puts us in not ideal situations. He's the one that, that puts us through suffering. He's the one that puts us to, through, through trials because he wants to grow our character. That's one of the reasons why a lot of Christians have a hard time with healing, because they think that God put the sickness on them to grow their character. But when I think about Joseph's story, I'm actually reminded oftentimes of Job's story. I, I feel like they parallel. You know how sometimes scripture will interpret scripture and you'll see consistencies in one place and another. I see some consistencies in Job's story. Because right from the beginning of Job, the book of Job, it says that Job was a righteous man. Completely righteous. Even to the point where God's bragging to Satan, saying, look at this guy. He's my boy. This guy's righteous, the most righteous guy in all the land. And what happens? Satan is the one that... that buffets him, that brings all this destruction to his life. This whole time, Job is thinking, God, why is this happening? Why are you letting this happen to me? And at the end, as you're reading through the book of Job, you feel like, oh, we're going to get our answer of why this, uh, God allowed this or um, you know, let this happen to Job. But it's kind of unsatisfactory <laughs> at, in the end because you actually don't get any answers. Job didn't get an answer of why God let that happen to him. But we, we know that in the end, that, that Job, when he saw 
God in all his majesty, in all his omnipotence, that that question, he didn't need answered anymore. And so God restored Job even more over, many times over. And I think that's what happens is that what, what we, we will attribute to God what should be attributed to the devil. It's so true. It's so true. The lesson that I learned from Job is that, look, it doesn't matter who you are. I mean, we are in a war. We are in a battle. Bad things are going to happen. But are you prepared for when they do happen? What if Joseph's story which we completely miss out on, isn't something where, this is what I've heard preached, is that Joseph was a dreamer, and he held on to his dreams. He held on to his dreams, and that's what catapulted him out of the prison and into the palace. That he held on to that hope of that dream. Do you know what his dream was? That one day his, his family would bow down to, or that's what it seems, right? So can you picture Joseph in prison with that dream? Oh, it's okay that I'm a slave right now. I'm in prison because God showed me my family's going to bow down to me one day. If that was what got him through the prison, which you don't actually hear mention of his dream ever again until the, the end of the story. Like, wouldn't you think that would make him so bitter and angry at God and bitter at his family instead of completely forgiving? We, we, we have this lesson, this, this um, what we learned from Joseph's story, how we've heard it preached, is that, yes, he's, he's the model for us to pursue your dreams. That's going to get you to your ultimate calling, which is to be at the top of a sphere of influence and to influence for Jesus. I don't even see that in Scripture. I don't even think Joseph knew it was on the table that one day he could be second to Pharaoh. So there's all these inconsistencies. It never really sat well with me. I'm like, I, I don't know if that's the original intent of the author. But what if it is a bigger and deeper meaning? That Joseph was an example of someone who knew he was fully loved. He was righteous. Yet injustice happened to him. He I'm not saying he didn't struggle with it, question God, you know, had hard moments. But what if he's an example of like, man, I went through suffering 13 years. It was so unjust. But he was an example of someone who knew God was with him. And not only that, but that God was good and he's just and he's faithful. And he restored him. See, if, if we miss out on that message, we miss out on an opportunity of, of learning how to be encouraged in our spirits with empowered hope that, look, God's not, he's, God's not putting me in this, this prison. God is not the one who's, you know, uh, bringing sickness on my life. He's not trying to inhibit me in any way. He, he actually loves me. But he did promise that suffering would come. That sounds to me, that lines, aligns more with scripture, right? 
but we can hold on to the hope that there is an enduring strength for the righteous in God and that we can trust that he will restore us, that it's not the end of the story. You see, the God dream to me is for Joseph. I, I believe, yeah, like Joseph probably pondered that in prison oftentimes. And I think one of the main purposes of the dream is, was to encourage Joseph, not that his family's gonna bow down to him one day and he's gonna have all this power and influence. I believe it was signaling to him, your story's not over. Your story's not over. Can you imagine being in a prison after being a slave for so many years and one moment you think you have your way out? Oh, you know, when he interpreted the dreams of the, the butler uh, and the baker, I believe, and he interpreted a dream and he said, remember me when you go back to Pharaoh and relay these dreams, remember me. And so he's thinking, oh, this is my ticket out. This is my, if anything, God aligned the stars. And it's now he's, he's moving on my behalf and I'm get out of this prison. Like what kind of, this isn't by chance. And then all of a sudden the, uh, the butler completely forgets about you. And you're sitting in there in the prison, in the dark, first, you know, the first couple days, just excited, like, man, I can't wait until they get me out of here because I, I got divine revelation from God, interpreted this dream, this is sovereign, like this is God moving on my behalf, and then day after day after day passes. Wouldn't that just destroy your soul? Wouldn't that just destroy your hope? Wouldn't that anger you towards God, God, I thought this was my way out. It seemed like you were all over it. How come I'm still stuck in here? Two years pass. Your hope is probably gone, completely gone. Will I ever get out of here? You're not thinking, I'm going to be second to Pharaoh one day. Let alone, you're not even chasing after the aspiration. I feel like what we preach in the church is that, is that, Oh, we have to aspire as Christians. We want to change the world. We got to aspire to, to uh, you know, be second to Pharaoh, to influence that kingdom for God. We hear that for Joseph's story. I, I can't see that. <laughs> Sorry, I don't. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that isn't true, stand alone in a different situation. But we see here Joseph two more years in the prison. I don't know how he has the depth of strength to stay righteous, right? To not completely fall away from God. It's not like he had sermons to encourage himself with. He didn't have a Bible to encourage himself with, right? And all of a sudden, we, we see, like, we don't have any explanations for why, but finally, one moment, there's salvation for him. He gets an opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And then overnight, he's catapulted, second in command. Scripture even says he's like a father to Pharaoh. 
It wasn't something that Joseph was chasing after. He wasn't chasing after influence. He wasn't chasing after power. Even though it sounds very high and mighty and, and like a, a, a really good cause, like, yeah, I'm going to change all of your uh, Egypt for God. When he was up there, he didn't do that. So I feel like that's one of the things that can happen when you just immediately take someone else's interpretation of scripture and their assumptions about even like heart motives, how that could change, like drastically change the narrative, how that could drastically change the life lesson. And the, the harm in that, the potential harm is, in that is that then we, we move and act and live out our lives with that lesson in mind. So whenever something hard happens to us, we don't have that liberating, liberating thought and the knowing that, man, this just happens to everyone. We think it's deliberately God <laughs> putting in us in that situation to teach us a lesson. I mean, no wonder it's so hard to relate to God as a good father if we keep attributing things to him that should be attributed to the devil. Just saying. You guys getting this? <laughs> Am I making sense? So I think in, in walking you through how I read the story of Joseph, again, I'm not trying to get you to agree with me, but I do hopefully want to show you that a different perspective. And by walking it through with you, just even differentiating, like, how we can readily assume someone's heart intention when the scripture doesn't explicitly say so. Like again, in Judas Iscariot's case, where scripture had no problem saying, look, this is not what he means, he's actually a thief, so he didn't care about the poor. And when you can stay curious, when you can become an observer, then scripture might actually open up in a new way for you a new revelation, and, and a deeper, bigger purpose and lesson that actually has the power of God to actually germinate in your heart and give you life-giving strength in, in an area you didn't even know could be available to you. See, for me, I don't know if this is encouraging to you, it encourages me that, that everyone's gonna go through very hard stuff then I know it's not because you know, I was bad or I wasn't enough. We see someone that was fully loved by God, it still happened to him. He knew he was loved. It was a big injustice. Same with Joe, big injustice. And another lesson is that, do you know how to live in mystery? Do you know how to live in a place where you won't get all your answers, questions answered? And are you okay with that? Or are you going to allow your questions not being answered to offend you to the place where you talk yourself out of God? That happens all the time. We'll measure God based on our own life circumstances 
will judge his goodness based on what happens to us when that might not even be truth at all. Maybe the truth is that simply, look, you're on earth, we're in a fallen world, you're going to go through trial and suffering. (laughs) But you will get through it. There is hope, a tangible strength that you can tap into where you will see God rise on your behalf. He will restore you. Your story is not over. Now that sounds like a more consistent message to me that aligns more with even other places of the Bible. All right, amen? Cool. Won't you guys stand up with me? I think that was enough for today. I hope you guys were able to follow along. And I really meant it, you know, before I started preaching that this wouldn't just be like an intellectual thing and like, hey, we're just going to dissect scripture. But I feel like just even doing this together, that there's actually an impartation where as you read scripture, you'll even see it opening up in new ways. You'll, you'll actually start seeing it with fresh eyes. And it's so exciting when you can actually hear something from the Lord and, and see something in Scripture you've never seen before. Because it, it's such a personal and tangible thing where you know this thing is alive. This thing is alive and active. And it, it is, when, you, when you're reading the Word, it's more than just reading words off a page. It's an encounter with the Word Himself. It's an encounter with God himself. Won't you just place your hand on your heart? I'm just going to pray for you guys, and we'll wrap this thing up. But um, Father, I just thank you, God, just for whatever was released today. Holy Spirit, uh, I pray for that, that, that you would take what was released, you would breathe on it, that it would be a catalyst to launching us further into into knowing you, completely knowing you for who you are, and even giving us a love for the Bible, to have fresh eyes for it, to have fresh eyes for the Word, just even being able to experience the joy of having our own revelations with you. And so I pray for that, just even all over the room, Holy Spirit, I pray for that, that you would just release revelation, you would release wisdom, you would release new sight, new perspective whenever opening the Bible, that it would become so alive in everyone's hearts and minds, and and that you would just give us more revelation as to who you truly are. So I just bless everyone here. I thank you, God. Yeah, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen. Can we thank Richard for that word this morning?